We hear a lot of perspectives on the Mankind Podcast. Inclusion of a guest is not an endorsement of their views, and the opinions expressed here do not always represent the mission or values of the Mankind Project USA. Looks like the rain has gone. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It's Boys and Hodgson with the Mankind Podcast the podcast where we're setting out to prove that there are indeed multiple ways to be a man, more than one way to be a man. And I think that we are proving that week on week with every guest that we have. Thank you for coming back today. This is a long time coming, this conversation. I'm with Max Cloud today. I've been aware of Max for quite a number of years and tracking him and his book sitting on my shelf and just happened to see something pop up in social that had me inspired to reach out. And I'm excited about this conversation. Max, say hello, and then I'll do a bit of your bio. Hello. Thanks so much for having me, Boyson. Really excited to be here. Yes. Dr. Max Clow is an integral master coach. We'll hit what integral is a little bit in this. He's an author, a speaker, a podcast host, and a consultant based in Boston, Mass., which is crazy, 90 minutes away from me, and I didn't even know that. He's an alum of four service programs, has led service trips in Israel, Ghana, Honduras, and Ukraine. He received his doctorate from the Harvard Graduate School of Education in 2005 with a focus on leadership development and social change. He is currently the chief program officer at the New Politics. New Politics Leadership Academy, a nonpartisan nonprofit that is dedicated to recruiting and developing military veterans and alumni of national service programs to seek political office. We're going to talk about service leadership today. Previously, he was the vice president of leadership development at the AmeriCorps program City Year. During his decade at City Year, he worked with thousands of idealistic young people, dedicating a year of their lives to supporting students at high need schools across the nation. His writing about leadership has appeared in Fast Company and the Harvard Business Review, and his first book, Race and Social Change A Quest to Study a Call to Action, was published in 2017. He's a husband, father of two, artist, musician, and a community activist. Max's greatest passion is helping those who seek to serve others connect with their deeper, higher selves. And we also know each other because of the Mankind Project. So let's yes. let's start there. What's the MKP connection that we have? And talk about how that may have impacted your work. Yeah. So I did a new warrior training adventure in 2005, and I believe we were on the same program, right? That was your your first time that was we were my on it together. First staffing. I was for staffing. I went so you were staff an four. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yep. Great. So we first encountered each other at that uh, that new warrior training adventure. It was deeply transformational for me, and uh, you know, I'm sure I'll talk about it later. But the work of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, the shadow, all kinds of stuff that I really encountered for the first time, but just never heard about until I did that weekend, has become foundational to my work. So uh, in, in hindsight, I'm a little bit amazed at how transformational that, that weekend was. And that's, yeah, my experience here on the podcast with interviewing so many men who have had that connection to MKP, it's kind of like, where's your orbit around the Mankind Project today? Because it seems like I talked to guys who did the weekend 25 years ago. 
And it's like, they may not be involved in a regular thing. They may not be, but it's like, yeah, that was a turning point in my life that led to this, then to this, then to this, then to this. So thank you. I'm really happy. Certainly it's true for me too. And I'm glad that's true for you. And it's, we're going to be in this conversation kind of pulling a whole bunch of threads together. We're going to pull together integral theory. We're going to pull together Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. We're going to pull together a little bit of politics and divisiveness and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm really psyched. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. You come from the service background. So talk to me about servant leadership and how that is the heart of so much of what you do. Yeah. I mean, part of it is my life story is growing up without any idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I often like to say I have a twin brother who was an actor, knew when we were five he was going to be an actor. And that was part of my life was growing up. I never had a uh, – he never had a doubt. I never had a clue was the line I like to use. Um, nice. The only thing I knew when I graduated college was that I had I – had a privileged upbringing. Life was very good to me and I wanted to give back. And the only thing I knew was I wanted to serve. And so I did a year long service program in Israel after college and was just joyful. It was just the happiest I'd been. And then I kept doing service programs because I I thought I was kind of putting off my future, which is a way to delay, uh, you know, getting a real job. And then I realized you could actually have a a life in the, in the world of service, which was powerful. Um, And along the way, you know, there's a whole academic, literature around service, servant leadership. Robert Greenleaf is kind of the big name who wrote a book. Um, And it is, you know, servant leadership is when you are fundamentally focused on serving others above yourself. And my favorite quote is the true test of servant leadership is whether those you serve learn and grow as human beings. And that is, uh, you know, uh, as an academic who studies leadership, there's over 5,000 academic definitions of leadership. There's a lot of ways of thinking about leadership. This one really resonates as it is. It has to be about service to others. It has to be about service to others. And talk about some of those early experiences in being in service in Israel and then serving in AmeriCorps and serving with the City Year program. So what have you seen? Because this is a long arc. This is a long arc. How have you seen things change in referencing this idea of servant leadership in the culture? Have you seen a change? What's different now than when you started doing this work? Wow, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I will say that, you know, I kind of discovered service and was like, whoa, here's this world of people who are kind of in the world in the same way I am and really want to, you know, go out and be helpful to other communities while also being really thoughtful about themselves. And um, and to kind of discover there was a kind of a subculture uh, you know, in, in American civic life that was so powerful to me that I, I went many years without really knowing it was, it was there, you know, and over time I found, you know, now I get to work with a whole lot of military veterans and, you know, the military is 1% of the American population. So it's this incredibly powerful community, but it's a really small number of Americans who dedicate their lives to service that way. And then when you add in AmeriCorps, which is really my home base, you know, my career has been really grounded in AmeriCorps and that's 180,000 people a year. So again, time, that's a tiny percentage. Yes. Yeah. And part of that is because, uh, if we were willing to invest the money to grow the number of people who did service, like it's possible with some policy choices that we have a lot more people doing that, you know, but 
I feel like de Tocqueville very much at the beginning said there's there has always been this incredible strain in American civic life of just commitment and we come together and we form fire departments and groups that and there has always been this part of American uh, society that is deeply focused on service, you know, and it and it exists alongside this American strain of like deep individualism of just I'm only in it for my and both of those things are true to America. And my experience has been finding there is this movement that is always trying to grow the number of people who have the opportunity to serve in a, in a meaningful way. And it remains, uh, it remains a struggle, like a cultural struggle to widen the circle of people who have the opportunities to have these service experiences. This touches on, so the kind of Rousseau versus de Tocqueville in the, in the conversation, right? Uh, individualism, individual motivation, self, self-service versus other service um, as a creative tension in our society. Yeah. And how do you see, so this is again, like, do you see one side winning? Do you see one side, like, how do you see that tension being managed these days? Well, I, I, I do believe both are genuinely true to America. America is both of these things. And it's a question of which thread, or, you know, I'm sure you know the, the, the a metaphor of the wolves, of there's two wolves right. in our in our hearts, and one is full of anger and hatred and and rage and the other one is full of kindness and compassion and they're fighting and which one wins is the the wolf that we feed is the one that wins and i I do feel like these are both just fundamentally american ways of being one is deeply individualistic and uh you know um the cowboy i mean it it gets to a lot of ideas of manhood if i'm out there with you know on my own i don't need anybody i don't owe anybody anything and then there is this we come together and we uh we serve together, and that is deeply American too, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm crystal clear which which side of that I'm going to spend my life working on, you know. Yes, uh, but I do think they're they're both very true to America, and it's a real question of which which one is going to um, where we put our energies matters a lot for the future of the country. So I'm I'm we're sitting right on the edge of a conversation about integral theory and kind of developmental models I think and how two yeah. two simultaneous value systems and worldviews can be existing at the same time and feeding oh, yeah. off of each other yes. and putting tension yes. on each other. For you if there was a place that you said hey if for a listener out there who's not familiar with that brand of work is there a pointer that you would say yeah go here to start that journey for yourself? I mean, you know, the, the guru of integral theory is Ken Wilber, um, who has dozens and dozens of books. Uh, I'll be honest, they're, they're dense and academic and, and uh, not for everybody, you know, but he does have an integral theory that's kind of like an overview of things. And for folks who aren't familiar, Ken Wilber um, really tried to integrate, and I think successfully integrated, all these developmental theories from the East and the West. And he's like, there's moral development theory, there's cognitive development theory, there's emotional development, there's, there's all these different bodies of developmental theory. There's also the way the East thinks about it. There's spiritual, there's a spiritual dimension to this. And he was just obsessed with this question of how does this all fit together? And he developed integral theory as a way of integrating all of this stuff. 
in a in a really powerful way, you know. Um, and for folks who are who are interested in just thinking about human development, it's really kind of a towering intellectual achievement what he has put out there in the world. And you know, if you're interested in the ideas behind this, start with uh, um, with one of his books. Cool. Thank you. Let's talk about um, let's talk about your book and what. Yeah, a quest, a study, and a call to action. What was the impetus? What was your motivation? So this was in the course of your advanced studies. This was after you were already deeply immersed in city year and in the service world. Is that not true? Did I just Well, lie? it's interesting. It was actually my dissertation. It, its first life was my dissertation. Okay which was finished before I was at City Year. Okay. And then seven years after that was Michael Brown and that, that whole wave of kind of racial unrest. Yes. And I said, I have to, I think this is a contribution. I have to get it out there. So I rewrote my dissertation, was able to get it published 10 years after, you know, I finished it in grad school. Talk about the book. Yeah. I mean, I've always been fascinated by... Well, racism in America, uh, you know, it is clearly an incredibly important topic, a divisive issue. It speaks to the heart of who we are. And I've always been fascinated by it. And of course, my positionality, my, my life experience is as a, kind of a straight white male moving through that system and trying to understand it from my position of privilege and um, have just always been really fascinated by it. And... When I got to grad school, when I started at the you know School of Education and studying developmental psychology, you know I always say I'm I'm 51% psychologist, 49% activist. Okay. Um, you know I uh, I'm an introvert. I think I'm particularly drawn to the inner life of the individual, but also very aware that there's a big world out there out, out around us. And you know my surface experiences have given me chances to go see what it looks like in Africa and what it looks like in South America and in our cities and, you know, to, to see what is going on outside of my bubble. Um, and so I've really been struggling for years. Like how do we understand the relationship between what's going on inside the head and heart of an individual and these bigger systems mm -hmm. of which we are a part. And so the story of the book is I was doing research into youth leadership and uh, I found a youth leadership program called Camp Anytown that some listeners might have heard of its part run by an organization called NCCJ, the National Conference for Community and Justice, that's actually been around for like 70 years and runs all over the country. Mm. And they do this youth leadership program that's a resident week-long residential program that is really focused on exploring these isms like racism and sexism and uh, all that stuff in a very experiential way. And I went to go see this and on the last day of the program, after a week of discussing all these issues, they ran this really provocative educational exercise where they separated the kids into different groups, whites, Asians, Jews, Latinos, blacks, and um, told them to only stay with your group and don't talk to other groups. And then they went into breakfast and the white kids went first and had double servings and a big table to sit at. And every group lower in the hierarchy had, you know, less. And so basically they were creating a simulated Jim Crow style social system. Okay. Um, but the idea, of course, was this is a chance to give the participants a chance to practice challenging these systems and transforming these systems. Uh, and so between breakfast and lunch at this summer camp in, you know, in new England, there was this little miniature civil rights movement. And I was like, this is 
everything I've ever wanted to understand in a petri dish. Really, mm-hmm. like this is a you know what could we what could we learn if we could study multiple miniature civil rights movements unfolding. So that's became my dissertation, which became my book, is I, I was able to watch three of these things uh-huh. and watch these things unfold. And of course, you could, you know, I gave questionnaires to the individuals. So you could get a little sense of what was going on in the in the in the minds and hearts of the individuals in the system, while you could also stand back and kind of observe the entire system in a way that you really can't in the, you know, I understand in the real world, we're all immersed in this. There's no getting out of it. Right. But in this exercise, you kind of could stand outside of it and be an observer and understand what was going on for the folks inside of it. So it was a, you know, a, a way to understand systemic racism and how these systems transform and the experience of the individuals in those systems all at the same time. And are there some are there some highlights or heart wrenches or openers that hit you in watching that and in the process of unpacking it through writing your dissertation, writing the book? I mean, it's a very provocative challenging exercise Mm -hmm. you know um it raises all kinds of ethical questions it definitely and i I talk about in the book it extends a tradition of uh social science studies like the milgram zimbardo and obedience the zimbardo stanford prison experiments i was like this extends that whole tradition that is ethically questionable and it raises a lot of ethical questions I'm very clear I did not write this book so that other people can go out and do this. Like my point is not everybody should go do this to kids. Um, it's it's very hard to keep an open heart to what these systems do to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, it's a challenge as a researcher to try and be with the whole thing, you know. Um, but it does also allow you to step out of yourself and see the larger system. And, you know, kind of a key thing was the people who challenged these systems, especially especially at the beginning, early on, were folks who just had this incredible connection to their own voice. They just, they saw, they knew it was wrong and they couldn't be quiet about it. They're like, I don't, this is scary. You know, I'm going to have to challenge authority figures. I'm going to have to risk pushback from my peers, but uh, I need to, speak with integrity what, to what I'm experiencing and, and say what I see. And so there is this connection between our own connection to ourself and our ability to challenge and transform these systems. That was kind of a key insight. And so you get from this inner work that we do to, to really know ourselves yes. and to be true with ourselves and what that means with the with the world around us. So I'll pause there. Thank you. I'm digesting, yeah. and that's that connection. So, at, you know, it's kind of the, one of those again creative tension, right? Between in order to effectively speak, use my voice, name what I see systemically, there is inner work that has to kind of happen that facilitates being able to motivate and bring together social and political action in the outside world. And I I even go a little bit further, Boyson, because one of the big findings, so I watched three of these. Yes. And all three of them went completely differently. That's cool. Right. But it it did raise the question of like, why? What is going on? Yes. You know? 
Um, I kind of expected to study, you know, who are the first people who challenge these systems? What are the first groups that kind of get together? And I, I had that whole question, but but then each of these three three things unfolded in completely different ways, and I had to try and understand, like, what? How do we understand why each of these systems unfolded differently? And it seemed to go back to the the way of being of the authority figures who were running the program. Wow. Um, okay. You know, there was one authority figure that was the one program. She uh, was this mix of dictatorial and disengaged. Uh, she was the only one who kind of didn't share authority with her team. She kind of like said, everybody have to follow these rules. I'm the only one in charge. And then she kind of like hung out in a cabin while this whole thing unfolded. So this weird mix of like holding all the power herself and then just, and the whole thing just fizzled, like kind of nothing happened. Mm. And then there was this other one where they were so compassionate. They were like, we're, you know, we're not going to do like use our authority in hard ways with these kids. And they ended up, you know, after about an hour pulling everybody together for a song session, which was uh, so emotional because everybody was supposed to be disconnected, but singing these songs like, um, you know, about togetherness. And it created this very emotional thing that, uh, that was cathartic, but people didn't feel empowered. Like nobody had a chance to do anything to create change. And so there was this weird sense of emotional connection, but not a lot of empowerment. And then the third one, they were like, we are going to use our authority because that's part of this uh, exercise is like the authorities are saying you can't do this, but we're also going to have a really deep compassion that we understand why we're doing this and there's a reason behind this. And so they held power and love. Um, so I, the way I think about it is the first one was just power without a lot of love. Yeah. The second one was all love and no power. And the last one was a balance of power and love. And that was that last one was where it was the closest thing to simulating real life where you got this self-organized nonviolent protest movement that emerged in these incredibly creative ways. And, you know, the, the strange finding was like the, the inner way of being of the people in charge created this field in which things were possible. Wow. And it just, you get to this place of like really bearing witness to the relationship between our inner way of being and the, the dynamics we call forth outside of us in a way that uh, it was a total surprise. I did not expect to see that, you know, but it speaks to the power of doing the work to cultivate a particular way of being that aligns with kind of our deepest values and, um, and recognizes our interconnectedness with the world around us. And it just suddenly arrived at this place where the relationship between inner way of being and the systems and structures around us popped into crystal clear view, you know, and there's a way of thinking about it of if we live in a world that is segmented and polarized and disconnected from itself, that is because our inner worlds, that is our, we are disconnected from ourselves inside of ourselves. We are at war with ourselves in the inner worlds. Yes. And so we are creating that outside of ourselves. And the idea that we can shift the outside without shifting the insides suddenly becomes like just a clearly not going to work. Clearly doesn't make sense. Yeah. There's so much about worldviews, value systems, belief systems embedded in those three models that you just laid out, right? There's this very kind of modern take of the first modern or even pre-modern take of the first like power without compassion. Right. 
Right. And then this kind of postmodernism, all love without exactly. management and power. Exactly. So we need that other edge of of yes, of modernism and then the the integration, a kind of integral view. It's like no, it's all important. What's happening yep. on the inside is reflected in what's happening on the outside and then we can yep. serve those things together. So that takes us right back into kind of like servant leadership, right? Those are yeah. Yeah, those are the pieces. So as you and I are, are are similar in some ways and and different in others, but you know, white heterosexual raised middle class college educated like all of those all of Mm -hmm. those pieces um Mm -hmm. one of the things that i want to ask you specifically about is white saviorism oh yeah so having written a book about race and social change being involved in in service leadership for so long doing the work that you're doing with new politics and now it kind of starts to enter into okay so how do we prevent ourselves from going off the rails as Yeah, into this kind of savior complex. Yeah. Well, one of the things I do in the book is write as vulnerably as I can about my own journey of awakening as a kind of privileged white person to the realities of systemic racism and realizing how much of this system that privileges me I wasn't aware of yeah. and how, my, how, how much my way of thinking kind of early on came from this place of let me help these poor, unfortunate people. And that, that, that real problematic white saviorism that I had to uh, wake up from. And, you know, over the course of understanding this stuff and my own journeys really got to a different place. Um, it, and it's one of the reasons why I love the service movement, because, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is if you help you're saying that life is weak. And if you fix, you're saying that life is broken. And if you serve, you're saying that life is whole. And, you know, to... Who is yeah, that? Who? Uh, you know, I, if you Google it, it'll come up. I, 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 I'm i going to blank on her name right now. But it's such a beautiful quote. But it really speaks to the intentions that we bring. Um, and to get to this place of we really are all in this together. Mm. Uh we are all, you know, and if this system of this racial system is not so great for white people, even though we, we have resources and, you know, there's there's a lot of privilege, it is hurting us, too. And to recognize we're all in the system, none of us really got to choose where we showed up and how we came into the system and the path we get to walk. But but from wherever we are, what does it mean to try and serve the whole and um to use whatever privilege we have to try and shift these norms so that the system is more just and equitable um, and fair is the work we all have to do from wherever we are. And, you know, I, I go at length in the book about my kind of awakening from being in this place of the white savior to really feeling a sense of solidarity. We're just in this together and let's use whatever power and privilege all of us any of us have to try and shift these so that this system is um, better for all of us. That's so good. Yes. If you're, if you're helping, you're saying the system is weak. If you're fixing, you're saying it's broken. If you're serving, you're saying it's whole. Yeah. 
thank and, you, you for know, that. It's really gotten to me to this place of what I can do, given my positionality, is hold a space that is deeply grounded in understanding of other people. They are whole. They are complete. They already have the wisdom, the courage, the strength, the insights they need. And what I can do is hold a space that helps people connect with that. And that is a way of engaging that is not about power over, you know, um, or is not about showing up with this white savior mentality, but it is about how do I use my power? Because uh, I, I do have power. I have a doctorate from Harvard. I'm, a, you know, like, um, and I, I definitely got to a place of just being ashamed of power is not helpful to anybody. Like just living in a place of guilt and shame is not helpful. Like it is a blessing to have this. The question is, how do we use it? in a way that is truly about empowerment and liberation and, um, you know, uh, creating conditions and systems that are more just and fair for everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Well said that allergy to power as, uh, as a principle, as a thing that gets kind of objectified like an objectively wrong from some perspective right we end up in this place where like all power is wrong we're trying to defeat all power yeah like, exactly power is essential to yeah and you know I've, I've definitely gotten to a place of power just is it is a it fact is. of human existence it can be used to do incredible good it can be used to do incredible evil the question is are we using it are we are we using our power from our light or our dark like what what are we using power from perfectly you know? segued yeah shadow yeah yeah i will say my first encounter with shadow was at the new warrior training adventure it was not something i had uh, heard about before and the work that happens at that weekend is just incredibly powerful and for me it sent me down this whole kind of intellectual journey around Joseph Campbell, which got to Carl Jung and into reading about all of this, you know, um, and, and this idea of it's the parts of ourselves that we, we are not conscious of that we haven't integrated. It has this incredible power over us until we look at it, you know, until we make it conscious. And I certainly had my own experiences, you know, started in a really powerful way at the new warrior training adventure around seeing how that worked in my own life. And then starting to see American civic life through this lens of there's yes. just so much shadow. There's just so much projecting all the darkness on some other and dehumanizing the other. And this crazy, like seeing in somebody else, everything that is clearly what I am doing, but I'm seeing it just, um, you know, again, to, to, to hold like the deeply personal with the collective and to see how connected it all is, has been part of my journey. And to pretend that it's any different, right? So it gets into psychological terms, but projection, transference, sublimation, right. like all of these, all of these kind of things that are kind of part and parcel of the political life writ large yeah. Yeah. out there. So how does that then, how does this awareness and study translate into the work that you're doing today? And start yeah. with the call. Start with the call, because that to me was really compelling when we had our first conversation. Interesting. So I encountered Joseph Campbell for the first time at the New Warrior Training Adventure. And I have never been as obsessed with a, 
or a writer as I have. He, he took over my brain for about five years. Uh, for folks who don't know, you know, he's a comparative mythologist. He studied myths told all around the world, you know, from caveman times up to he inspired Star Wars, you know, modern Hollywood blockbusters. Um, and he realized there was this one underlying story underneath all these stories that seemed on the surface to be so different. And I know it's very integral to the Mankind Project's way of creating a, you know, kind of rite of passage experience, you know, and he's just written thousands of pages and I just kind of went through everything he, he wrote. And then there was a biography of him that I had to read. It just um, this sense of suddenly seeing through the details to some kind of unity beyond the seeming cacophony mm. was absolutely mind-blowing to me and you know he talks about myths being transparent to transcendence and this idea that uh if you understand them properly you look through them because they point beyond themselves to universal truths of the human experience and suddenly all these things that seem to be talking about different things or seem to be at odds with each other are actually all referencing some universal thing that is bigger than any one myth or any one religion or any one philosophy and that was just such a powerful finding for me, nice. you know. Um, and I guess, you know, after the New Warrior Training Adventure, I got a job at City Year, which is an AmeriCorps program. So it's young adults, 18 to 24, who do a 10-month full-time service program in high-need schools, keeping kids in school and on track to graduate. Really intense yes. uh, and powerful. And it's also a little bit of a civic rite of passage. And actually, people... Other people in the past had thought about national service as a rite of passage. Yes. So, I, you know, I wasn't so original to, to do that, but I spent 10 years trying to create a curriculum that made that idea come alive in the daily experience of core members. Nice. So what does it mean to frame the whole experience right from the beginning as you are about to take this heroic adventure that begins with an answering the call and then you're going to get initiated into the ways of this community. And then you're going to face the road of trials. And, you know, um, and really it was years of experimenting. Like, how do we do this at scale? Like City Year had, you know, there were 2,000. Now there's 3,000 core members. How do you create an experience that is, um, can be delivered at that kind of scale that invites people into understanding their world through this lens? You know, and it took a lot of trial and error and experimentation or failure to figure out how we frame it. But so that people suddenly stepped across that threshold of I am open to the possibility that I am stepping into a heroic journey here in which it will be transformational to me by trying to serve others. Which in and of itself is a huge self-awareness shift from I am a, I am uh, an object being acted on. I am a victim of circumstance. Oh, yeah. To I am an agent in my evolution. I am entering into a yes. journey, right? Which in and of itself, like that is an incredibly empowering shift yeah. to make. Yes. And, you know, something I've learned from my years in the service world, of there's, there's this implicit belief in people who do service that, if I turn inwards and focus on myself, I'm abandoning the work of serving others. That's beautiful. That's a great distinction. Good. Go. Yeah. You know, um, there was a, there was a respect for reflection 
at the organization, but often reflection was kind of like, let's debrief the service program we just did or, um, or, and there was also kind of let's learn about some social issue that impacts the communities and let's think about that. But to really step away from serving others to turn inwards and do the work around what's my mission, what's my shadow, what do I feel called to do in my life and, and to really do personal inner work, there was this kind of unstated resistance and, and after pushing against it for years, I realized it, it comes from this place of like, if you are serious about service, your life energy has to be focused on others. Mm-hmm. And you are not doing the work of service if you turn inwards and focus on yourself. And I mean, I, you know, I, I deeply think that's just mistaken. Like there's when, when we focus on ourselves and do our work, our capacity to serve others is enhanced, you know? Um, but it is something I've learned is that uh, it's it's a challenge among people who are deeply committed to service to invite them to do this work because they should be thinking about the the, the marginalized and the needy in the communities that have so much you know, that that just need need so much, which can turn into kind of a, a it's so strange to think of it it's kind of contradictory but that refusal to turn inward and to do that deeper vulnerable work actually becomes a form of kind of neurotic narcissism, right? It becomes this kind of reinforcement of, you know, a, a holy, a holiness, a bypass, spiritual bypass on. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say, you know, one thing I've learned. So now I, I was doing shadow work with city year and now we're doing it with aspiring people who are considering running for office. Yes. And the biggest aha for me is how often people are like, I have just never heard of this, mm-hmm. you know, to, to that I have a shadow, that all of us have a shadow, that there's this part of ourselves that um, if we are not aligned with our, you know, kind of noblest, highest self, we're, who we are can be pretty ugly and bleak and, and, and problematic. And I just have never been shown that or given a way to understand the world that, and, you know, I really think we've hit the limits of how much change we can create without recognizing this inner work has to be done. The idea that we can solve these big problems without turning inwards and doing this inner work, we are just seeing that we, we've hit the limits. Like we can't keep doing what we've been doing and, and see the change we need to see. And right there is the 30 second clip that I'm going to take for this podcast. Love it. <laughs> Love like, it. Yeah. Like that just, that just rings true. So in the organization that you're working with right now, when we spoke before, um, the, what you said was that the first question that you ask of folks who have been in service that you are going out to speak to is, are you hearing the call? Is there a yeah. call to you? Yeah. Um, and then if you're willing to face that call. So you've kind of reframed this whole entry into a different level of service as a hero's journey in itself. So, Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the use of the term calling, for a lot of people, it evokes a religious, right. you know, religious framework. And, I, you know, I like to say I'm trying to work at the civic sacred. Um, Ooh, of, nice. There's a nice you know, intersection. I, I've talked about it in the past. There was a time where I thought I was going to be a rabbi. I'm Jewish. And, and uh, you know, I wondered, should I be a rabbi? And then things happen where it's like, I'm clearly, that is clearly not my path. But I cared a lot about the sacred and 
And I found my path was the path of citizen. Like I really care about civic life and democracy. And, um, and so I understand my work to be trying to work uh, with the civic sacred. And it makes sense to use these terms because people, when this is how people experience of it, I have this little voice in my soul saying, I think, I think you need to do this. Like you won't have integrity with yourself. You won't live the life you're supposed to live if you don't do this, you know? And it does have that feeling of I'm, I'm being called in a spiritual sense to step up in this new way. And, and so many people in our programs just say, I've just kind of never had the space and the time to think about this with other people who are, who are hearing the same call right. and to discuss together, you know, what does that mean for us? Regardless of outside of partisanship, and that's what I think is yeah. really, yeah, outside of we're all, we're all thinking and seeing the world in the same, th how can we be together in this, knowing that we are being called to something and do the examination together to move forward? I think that's really yes. powerful. So, yes. and also, you know, there's a Star Wars metaphor that comes in, which is having heard that, then you're entering into this road where you know, you, you have, you eventually end up in the cave fighting against Darth Vader, cutting his head off only to see that what's behind the mask is you. It's us. It's us. Exactly. It's funny. I actually have, we have this program called leading with purpose. That's a 90 minute. We run it every, every other month. And it is all using star Wars, like Joseph Campbell and star Wars to help people understand the shadow. And we actually use star Wars. Um, to, to help people understand this and to guide them through this work because it's such a powerful way of thinking about this. What do you see as a hope of uh, breaking out of, what do you see as a hope for the future in more and more people in civic life and service doing this kind of work? I have to say, it's the favorite thing about my job. Is You know, the headlines are so bleak and there's so much bad news and every day i just meet these truly incredible people who have lived lives of incredible service some of them you know decades in the military or they've been they've done the peace corps or national service or careers in education just truly servant leaders who have such beautiful noble uh missions in life and a willingness to live those missions and to see how many of them want to step up. Um, and it's so exciting to think about those folks really getting crystal clear about their why, like getting clear, I do feel called to this. This is why. And I have the shadow that I need to be conscious of. Mm. And there is a whole landscape of inner work I need to be doing, even as I plan my campaign and get out there and hopefully, you know, have an, a role as an elected official it's to me it's a whole consciousness shift yes of you know stepping into power with the consciousness that the inner and the outer are too interconnected to separate and we have to do our inner work even as we're trying to do our do our outer work from positions of power that's a whole new paradigm you know it's just very exciting to think about that super exciting to think about that last two questions they can be short ones so what out there do you see in being embodied by men that you just want to call out and bless? And I want more of that. I love that question. 
I mean, I have I have two kids, and I am amazed at how much uh, space they have around what it looks like to be you know have a, a boy and a girl, and and I do feel like even from my childhood, they just have room to kind of experiment, try different things, show up in different ways, and. I'm very inspired by how much the kind of man box has been opened up. And of course, there's this incredible resistance to it. I mean, what we're seeing, I think the, backlash, yeah. you know, the intensity of the backlash speaks to the, uh, how much progress has occurred. And we're currently in this cultural moment of like, it's never been, you've never had more space to be who you are. And the resistance to changing anything from how it's been is as intense as it's ever been. And we're really, in that moment, you know, but I see a lot of um, boys and men who uh, are okay with their emotions and understand they don't have to be, you know, the best person at sports to, and they're able to be themselves and be accepted. And that's really inspiring to me. And what do you see out there from women being embodied that you really want to shout out and say more of that, please? I mean, I get to spend all this time with uh, women who are deciding to step up and um, seek power and then wield power. And it's just so inspiring. And, and they bring such uh, emotional intelligence and such a consciousness of our interconnectedness and interdependence into these places where historically women haven't had a seat at the table. And it's, it's awesome to see and an honor to be a, uh, to be a witness to these folks finding their voice and stepping into their power and then getting out there into the arena and fighting the fight. I see Brilliant. Brilliant. Where can people find you? Um, well, I have my, uh, one website is maxcloud.com, M-A-X-K-L-A-U.com. And that's where my book is. And I also have a coaching website, Max maxclaritycoaching.com if you want to learn more about my coaching practice. And if you're interested in New Politics, check out newpoliticsleadershipacademy.org. Newpoliticsleadershipacademy.org, maxcloud.com, maxclaritycoaching.com. Is that what you said? Yeah, there we go. Yep. Look for the no look for the links in the show notes down below. Uh, Max, so cool. Long time coming. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to connect. Someday, uh, you know, coffee in Worcester or something Love like it. that, right? Love it. That's a plan. This That's has been the Mankind forward. Podcast produced in association with the Mankind Project USA. I have been your host, Brandon Clift, and I personally want to thank our guests for joining us today and imparting their wisdom from their experiences in this amazing journey called life. Now, the fee for this episode is simple. If you found gold and insights that you believe could benefit your loved ones and those you care about, be sure to share it with them. And of course, remember that life doesn't happen to us, it happens for us, so long as we rip the pen out of fate's hand and become the author of our own story. So my friend, pick up the pen, and we'll see you next week. Lots of love.